as we look at this passage, um, I was remembering the time that I first ventured out into the world. I was 20 years old. I left the family home in Sydney, got on a plane and went to Perth. I got my first job there, telecommunications startup. And it was a daunting time just finding my own feet. And I found myself spending quite a lot of time with my co-workers because I was in a new city, I was establishing friends and, and connections and you know, I was spending a lot of time with them. And I still remember the words of one of them. They said to me, you're different. I thought maybe because I'm from Sydney. But I said, well, in what way? And I was puzzled. And the response from them was, you don't swear. And I was a bit stunned by that. It's such a small detail. And it wasn't that I was being intentional with my vocabulary. I just thought it was normal not to swear. And that's probably a reflection of my upbringing. But such a small detail was noticed. And it got me thinking, well, how, much other, how, how, how many other things are people noticing about me? And this letter that was just written out, this letter was written to early churches that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. And it was written to encourage them to be intentional and to be Christ-like in their interactions together and with others. Because our actions are noticed. These early believers at the time, they were a minority and they faced hostility because they believed in Christ. Yet, remarkably, from that minority, they grew and they transformed the entire Roman Empire in just a small period of time, 300 years. How in the face of hostility were they able to do that? It's an important question for us to think about. I remember my teens and my 20s, people were somewhat friendly towards Christians and the place that they had in society and culture. But today, it's a bit of a different position. We're part of some obscure Jesus movement. I remember mentioning the word Jesus to someone for the first time. They'd never heard of Jesus. They didn't know anything about that. And culture and society is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity in some areas. The society is turning into one that would prefer Christians and pretty much anyone who's got a faith to just keep their faith private, keep it behind closed doors. How might we respond to that? <clears throat> well, one way is to withdraw, believing that the culture today is increasingly corrupt. And the only way that we can be vigilant about Christianity is to, to protect it, to avoid being influenced from the world. So, you know, making it private. Another way is to accommodate or to assimilate into culture, believing that maybe we're a bit out of touch, maybe we're a bit isolated. So let's just get into it. But both approaches have real problems. If we withdraw from society, it's going to be really difficult to have an influence. If we live with little bubbles of private faith, who's going to see that? On the other hand, if, if we're too afraid of being different, then we'll just flit in, we'll blend, and we won't be distinct at all. So how might we respond? Well, we do it the same way the early church did, and what Christian believers have done for 2,000 years, living a life that reflects Christ, and being gospel witnesses in the places and the spaces that we, we so happen to occupy. Today in Australia... In Adelaide, it's 
unlikely that we'll face open persecution like the recipients of this first letter did. But if we are engaged in our places and our spaces and we live out our hope in Christ, we'll get the occasional eyebrow raised. We'll get some ridicule. It's something that we should expect. And we should expect it to progressively get worse. The title today is Being a Prepared and Gentle Witness. And as we look through this passage, there's three things that I want us to keep in mind about being a witness. First is being in harmony with each other. Second is fearing God and not fearing suffering. And the third is drawing on Christ's example. So let us pray as we look into this. Heavenly Father, we pray that no matter where we are in our walk with you, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray you'll open our hearts, still our minds. Have your spirit talk to us today. We're in a world where lots doesn't seem right. And then we look to you, Jesus. Transform the way that we think and help us in the conduct of our relationships in our places and spaces so that we might display the gospel in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Being a prepared and gentle witness starts at church in harmony with each other. We see in verse 8, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because of this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. The passage starts off by saying, finally, but it isn't the end of the letter. There's still another two chapters to go, but it's the end of a series of teaching. Earlier in this letter, Peter has been encouraging persecuted believers on how they are to reflect Christ in their relationships as masters and slaves at that time, as husbands and wives in those relationships, and how to respond with government. Now, in this passage, he focuses on how to respond in relationships with each other as a body of believers. And that's the all of you that it's referring to there in verse 8. If our relationships with each other are on rocky ground, we're going to struggle to reflect Christ in our relationships outside of the church, in our places and spaces. If we can't love each other in our church community, if we have unkind attitudes here amongst ourselves as a body of believers, we're going to face challenges. Our social settings, our family settings, and in our workplaces. It will be extremely difficult to witness and to share gospels with others if we can't practice what we preach within each other's company here. So what are the attitudes there that Peter's describing in verse 8? Well, he's saying be like-minded. It's not saying we should be carbon copies of each other, so we don't have to agree on everything. But as subjects to King Jesus, as citizens of his kingdom, we need to be of one mind on the things that matter to our king and to refuse to let disagreement separate or distract us. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic, which is the opposite of selfishness, self-centeredness. It's a willingness to feel what each is feeling and encouraging one another in things that are going on. 
Paul said it another way in Galatians 6, uh, verse 2, carry each other's burdens. We are to love one another. We've been called to love as a family. We're to have the same care, concern, affection that we have for our biological brothers and sisters that they would normally have. Families have problems, that's okay. But you choose love to look through those. And because we love as brothers and sisters, we have a loyalty and a responsibility to each other. Be compassionate, having a tender heart for each other, a deep feeling for one another in the church family. Be humble. Pride is the root of most pettiness that goes on in churches. Peter calls us to set that aside, to be humbled toward one another, to see ourselves as servants to each other. In our quiet times this week, let's reflect on which of these attitudes that Peter's talking about are coming naturally to us and which ones are the most difficult um, for us. So how do we know if we're on the right track in living out these attitudes? Well, Peter provides an example there in verse 9. <clears throat> if insult is met with insult and evil with evil, then it's a sign we haven't incorporated these things into our relationships. It's evidence that we haven't been able to forgive each other. The sinful nature will return evil for evil, but the spirit nature will return insult with blessing. We're called to be a blessing to each other. When we suffer, we bless. When we're slandered, we bless. When we're hurting, we bless. Why? Because we're called to bless. It's there. But as we bless and suffer and bless, we're inheriting the blessings of Jesus, whose sufferings and blessings we also emulate as believers. Verses 10 to 12, uh, there's actually a quote there from Peter from Psalm 34, 12 to 16. And he's putting this in to bolster his case, that we must turn from evil and do good. Our tongue is prone to evil, especially when we're under pressure. We, com we complain, we blame. But in the spirit, our tongue becomes an agent of blessing. And this is not something passive. It's a decision. And you see there in verse 11, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Turning, seeking, pursuing. These are actions that won't come naturally when facing insult. The actions that are only the result of a decision on our part. Being a prepared and gentle witness starts with our church family in harmony with each other. And then we go into verse 13 where Peter asks the rhetorical question. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now normally when we do good, we receive good from other people in return. But sometimes suffering as in a hostile response, occurs even when doing good. And verse 14 acknowledges that. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. The suffering spoken about here in, in these verses is a suffering that results from righteous living. It's conforming to God's standards. This letter was written to early Christian believers who were facing hostility for their faith. 
they were being harmed because they performed good deeds in the name of Jesus. Peter's calling his readers and us towards righteousness, to do good and to do what is right. When you do that, you're more likely to avoid harm. But even if the result is suffering, we're encouraged to remember that we are blessed. And because of that, there is no reason to fear suffering that might arise from the doing of good. Why? Well, we've got a secure and an abundant future with God in eternity. Christians are called to live differently in the world. We're to lead good lives now, during this life, for the sake of Jesus. Jesus is our example. Jesus suffered for our benefit. So we should not be surprised when we suffer for his sake. And Peter writes that to suffer in this way is actually a blessing. It's a privilege. <clears throat> Peter then references Isaiah 8:12, a passage about fearing God rather than fearing men. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. When God spoke those words to Isaiah, Isaiah was reporting that God's strong hand was upon me warning me not to follow the way of this people. The people at that time feared death at the hands of their enemies, but Isaiah was not to fear. He was not to panic or be intimidated. He was to fear the Lord, not to fear the enemy. He was to trust in the Lord, and so are we, which is why Peter has put that into this passage. As Christians, we're called to refuse our natural response, which is to be afraid. To be afraid of those that might hurt us or to be afraid of a response that we might receive. We're told to reject that sort of anxiety. And instead, Peter gives some instruction in verse 15 on how we are instead to respond. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour on Christ may be ashamed for their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What's coming out of these verses? Well, focus on Christ rather than your fears. It's vital that we get our priorities right in that area. Just as God said to Isaiah during his crisis, we are not to fear what unbelievers fear, but we fear God. Be ready to give an answer. Sometimes we find ourselves terrified to witness to our friends, much less to our enemies, but we are to be prepared. It's good for us to think through why we serve Jesus. Why do we have this hope? Why do we believe what we believe? So that we can articulate that to others. Because questions will come. One of the distinguishing marks of Christians is their possession of hope. Christian hope is real. It's distinctive. We'll all have stories about how we have felt that hope. And it prompts questions from others. It's puzzling to non-believers. The Spirit will help us know what to say. Luke 12, 
verses 11 and 12 say that. But we must overcome our fears. We must be willing to say what God gives us to say. We must have an answer prepared. Reply with gentleness and respect. We're tempted to tell off and condemn our tormentors. But we must resist that temptation. Rather, we answer as Jesus did. We are to speak about our Lord with joy and gentleness, respecting our tormentors, because they're also people that Jesus died for. They just don't realise it yet. And keep a clear conscience. When we're under pressure and when our life is on the line, we're tempted to justify. We'll justify our actions, but the ends will justify the means. But we must act righteously and speak with gentleness. Otherwise, if we, if we respond poorly in the face of evil, then we're, we're becoming evil ourselves. We're doing evil ourselves. And Peter's uh, exhortation there in verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. A good conscience will mean that no one's got anything that can accuse us of. Don't, re don't respond with evil. Respond with blessing. And that's the best way to engage with a hostile culture. It isn't to blend into it or to withdraw from it, but to bless it. Respond with blessing. We should make friends with those who aren't Christians. We should hang out with people after work, after an event. We should build relationships with our neighbours and those in our extended family. We can't be too withdrawn and closed in to our Christian community. We need to have connections out with others. But at the same time as having those connections, we need to be distinct. We need to live such that our devotion to Jesus is evident to all people. And if we're asked questions, we need to be willing and ready to talk about those things that we believe. Being a prepared and gentle witness requires engaging in the places and the spaces that we occupy. Fearing God, not fearing the suffering that might come from others. And then Peter reminds us of Jesus' example when it comes to suffering in verses 18. <clears throat> for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He has put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Christians are sometimes called to suffer by the will of God for doing good. And here we're reminded that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. Christ died for sins once and for all. Jesus was a sacrifice for sins, but unlike the yearly animal sacrifices for sins that were in the Old Testament, Jesus was the final sacrifice for sins. God required no more blood and no more death. The righteous for the unrighteous. Peter has already established in, earlier in chapter 2, verses 22, that Jesus had committed no sin. Jesus, the righteous one, substituted himself to die for the sins of the unrighteous ones, which is all of us. And it was all done to bring us to God. Without Jesus' death for our sins on the cross, 
We could not come to God. We could not come into God's presence. Because of what Jesus has done, all who trust in Christ are brought to God. Though Jesus suffered and was put to death, it was a physical death in the body, not a permanent death. Jesus was made alive, it says there, resurrected. And in the Spirit, which could mean either through the Holy Spirit or that Christ's resurrection, uh, resurrected body was now somehow fit for the spiritual realm, the Spirit's activity, the eternal realm. We're given another example of suffering in the days of persecution, and this time it was in the days of Noah. In verses 19 to 21, they say, after being made alive, this is Jesus, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism, which now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, these, were, these verses are tricky. But first, let me give you the point of what Peter is saying before we look at the tricky bits. We're given an example of Christ. Christ's example of unjust suffering resulted in witness. And he was vindicated by God through the resurrection and then ultimately to the ascension at the right hand of God. Then we're given another example of suffering in the days of persecution. This is Noah, a man who bore witness in a hostile world at that time. He too was vindicated by God who delivered him and his family through the flood. And so Peter is is aiming to the conclusion that we should be willing to bear witness in a hostile world, including being baptised. In the early churches, baptisms were an open thing. Today we tend to baptise within the church service. But baptisms were out in the open, in, in waters, in rivers, in lakes, things like that. And so everyone would see someone's being baptised. It was quite visible to the local community. And it would be obvious who was converted to Christianity. It's an obvious witness, and it's a pledge of a new believer's faith. I remember speaking to a new Christian several years ago who grew up in another faith. He said the moment he was baptised, he lost everything. His family, his friends, career. But he gained life. His baptism was a public witness that resulted in direct suffering for him. And Peter is saying we should be willing to bear witness in a hostile world, even if it means persecution. So he's telling the early church, don't stop getting baptised, even though you're facing persecution. Be a witness. So these verses together were, were intended to give an illustration to make, it, make that overall point. But an illustration is supposed to make something clear, and I'm sure to the people in Peter's day that was crystal clear. But to us, it provides some tricky and confusing elements, particularly when it's talking about proclamation to imprisoned spirits and whatnot. So I've got a slide up, uh, if you go to the next one, um, of some of the explanations that come through there. Now, there's a QR code there. Feel free to scan that or search for those 
ketones there um, if you want to really deep dive and, and look into this. And I'd encourage you to have a look at that more stuff because I, I did that for several years before I went to BCSA Bible College. And it's really helpful to go through some of these theological things and to understand doctrine, which helps you understand some of the trickier points. But anyway, to, to summarize, the five common explanations of proclamation to imprisoned spirits was when Noah was built in the ark, Christ in spirit was within Noah, preaching repentance and righteousness through him to unbelievers who are on the earth at that time. But those unbelievers are now spirits in prison, like people in hell. Second one, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, offering them a second chance of salvation. Third one, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, proclaiming to them that he triumphed and that their condemnation was final. The fourth one, after Christ died, he proclaimed release to people who had repented just before they died in the flood. And that led them out of their imprisonment, which is known as purgatory, um, into heaven. And then the fifth one, after Christ died, or after he rose, he proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned by marrying human women before the flood. Now, there's quite a lot there. The paper goes into how those views come to be. Explanations one and five, they have some merit. Uh, but nowhere in scripture are we told the people in hell have a second chance for salvation. So explanation two doesn't make sense. Purgatory is not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. It's only in an apocryphal book called Second Maccabees. So explanation four is very unlikely. If I had to go with one, it would be the fifth one. And I'm saying that because I understand it's difficult. Conscious there's been a lot of ink. I'm not a theologian. I haven't written lots of books. But what pushes me that way? The use, the use of the word spirits, it's almost always used um, to refer to angels and not people or not dead people. The New Testament in other books and also in Second Peter refers to angels being in chains and in prison. Uh, I've got some Second Peter 2, 4, Jude 6, Revelation 20. If you want to look those up, um, it talks about that. And I suppose for me, what took it between 1 and 5? Well, the flow of these verses seem to lean towards a post-resurrection event rather than Jesus speaking back in Noah's day after he died. Um, but, yeah, feel free to uh, research that for yourself or sign up to for more stuff. Then there's also a reference to baptism in these passages and the way you could read it might indicate that baptism actually saves you. But the reference to baptism in this passage doesn't teach that necessarily. Peter's very clear that it's not the outward physical act of baptism, which he referred to as the removal of dirt from the body, but the inward spiritual act, which was the pledge of the clear conscience walk of God. Baptism is our public appeal. It's an outward act that we do to cleanse our guilty conscience and to give our pledge towards God. Um, and by bringing up baptism here, one he's talking about in the context of it's a, it's a witness that, to, that the church should be continuing even in the face of suffering and persecution. But he's also comparing it to the waters of judgment uh, in Noah's day. That as we are immersed into water, that we're reminded that we deserve death for our sins, but like those who died in the flood. But coming up from the water, we're kept safe safe by the ark of Christ. We've risen into a new life. 
Can a person be saved without being baptised? I believe so, because it's faith in Jesus and not the performance of doing Christian rites. And Luke 23, 39, 43 talks about the repentant thief on the cross who wasn't baptised. But baptism's often spoken about um, quite closely with belief because in the early church, baptism normally followed immediately after a profession of faith. So much so that they've always been kind of inter interlinked and interrelated. So for a Christian, when you put your trust in Jesus, the next logical step is to be baptised as a pledge to God of your faith to him and as an external witness to others. Then this section of 1 Peter concludes almost with a doxology. Verses 21, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus is indeed Lord now. He lowered himself, he humbled himself, even to death on the cross. But God has raised him from the dead. In Philippians 2, uh, verses 9 to 11, tell us about that. Being a prepared and gentle witness draws on the encouragement that we get from Christ's example of suffering. So to bring all of this together, we're reminded that we're actually, in fact, dual citizens. Some of you here might be triple citizens. But we're at least dual citizens. We're a citizen of this world, a citizen on earth. But for those who have also put their trust in Jesus, well, they're a citizen of the kingdom of God. The world operates this way. When someone is doing good, well, sometimes I might respond to that in evil. When someone has done evil, well, I might mirror that with an evil response. That's how the world works. But as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, our response is always to do good. Regardless of the way that we have been treated, we are to bless. And as difficult as it is, we are commanded this directly from Jesus. He said, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. It's in Matthew 5, verse 44. That is the godly way. That's the way of the kingdom of God. And that path will bring suffering, will bring persecution. Instead of withdrawing, we need to live a life that reflects Christ and be a gospel witness in all the places and spaces that we occupy. We must be a prepared and gentle witness that is in harmony with each other, that fears God, doesn't fear suffering, and draws on Christ's example as, as an example of suffering. Serve Jesus faithfully, whether you suffer persecution or not, emulate his humility, love each other in this church. Imitate his righteousness in all the areas of your life as you live in the world and serve Christ with a clear conscience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand who you are. We recognise that we are in a fallen world that is affected by sin. 
Help us to look at Jesus and transform the way that we think and conduct our relationships so that we might display the gospel in our lives. Be with us as we witness your love and grace into a world that needs you more than ever. Help us to apply your word to our lives this week and help us as a community of believers to encourage each other in our walk with you. Amen.